It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Voices of Reason. I am Jason Lee. Amy's out today, and we're going to have a great conversation today. I am uh, being joined by Anthony Nocello. He's a sociologist and assistant professor in the Department of Criminal Justice at Salt Lake Community College. He's also the director of Save the Kids. It's a national nonprofit that's working to end the uh, incarceration of youth and the school-to-prison pipeline, which is an enormous task you're trying to do, and I appreciate uh, the work you're doing, and thank you for joining us. Thank you. Yeah, it's uh, it's a big task, and uh, I started it uh, a while back in New York, and uh, I was working and uh, volunteering in, in prison, specifically Auburn, Attica, Five Points, and I was asking the guys, I was doing GD programs and anger management, and uh, I asked him, I said, you know, we set all this up, you know, we've got, we're in here three times a, a week uh, on a volunteer basis, doing education, uh, trying to do reintegration of uh, prisoners getting out of prison, state prisons throughout New York. What do we do next? And he said, we got to focus on the youth. He says, because we, when we get, we got in the system at a very young age. And once you get in the system, they don't let you go. Uh, so once you once you're in there, the, the the problem becomes getting out because you you spend so much time around these other people that it just it kind of consumes you. Yes, it does. And at the, I think uh, the system at the same time doesn't want to uh, let you go. Uh, you know, the rise in the early '90s of the prison industrial complex—they make money off you, right? So they're making twenty cents at, at to, slave wages. Yes, yes, literally. Yes, because the Thirteenth Amendment literally said we are going to abolish slavery um, in 1865, right after the Civil War, um, except if somebody's duly convicted of a crime. So if you're duly convicted of a crime in the United States, which means a prisoner, mm-hmm. um, you are a slave. So when when somebody asks, you know, from a critical perspective, how many people do we, how many prisoners do we have in the United States? We have none. We have, we have 2.5 million slaves in the United States. Wow. Yeah. And so that's kind of, we have to look at. People don't think of it that way though. You got to, you you would uh, admit that when we think of prisoners, we feel that people who've committed crime, therefore this is kind of how, how they ended up where they are. They don't necessarily understand what it means to actually then become uh, a ward of a state. For sure. They are owned by the state. And so you have a lot of companies that do or have um, used prison labor, right? Or slave labor, right? And that's how they get away with paying somebody 20 cents to 35 cents, you know, an hour where that would not be the case if it was outside that prison, right? We're talking about dental, healthcare, benefits, you know, the 40 hour work week, et cetera. So we're looking at anybody from KFC, um, Verizon, uh, Jansport, uh, um, uh, um, Victoria's Secret. Well, a lot of companies that we use on a daily basis use directly or indirectly or have um, directly or indirectly used um, pr- uh, prison labor in the United States. Yeah. So let's go back to kind of the, the youth uh, portion of what you, uh, the work you do. So the way you see it is 
uh, unfortunately, a lot of these people that end up in prison, they they get involved in uh, in the system at young ages. Are we we talking like in grade school? Yes. Uh, just recently, nationally, I don't know if you've seen the case, six-year-old girl. Yes. Uh, black. Uh, arrested. Uh, yeah, arrested. Um, by for, a minority, by the way. Yes, a black girl. No, uh, no, no. I mean, the, the, the officer. Oh, yes. His name was Ramos. Yes. Which, again, that struck me odd, too. Well, it it doesn't, right? From a critical lens, NWA knew this right off the bat, you know, black police showing out for the white cop, right? right? So you have to be more violent, more repressive to be accepted in a white supremacist or um, very uh, normalizing institution, right? And I think that's very, very difficult when we look at uh, these issues, when, um, you know, we have women that are not respected and people of color not respected in law enforcement or the criminal justice system. So they don't only have to have one master's. They have to have two masters. Right. They have to be overqualified. And that's not just in, in criminal justice. That's glo- like yes, that's in every career, yes. right? Um, because of the 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 idea you know, the, the the systems of oppression called sexism and racism, mm-hmm. right? Um, which we're working on, you know, I think many thousands and millions of people are working to dismantle it, but it, it's going to take a lot of, of effort and time. So, so when you look back at this, this six-year-old, yeah, uh, um, I remember the, the thing that bothered me, A, was that the, the, at the time, they called the police at all. Even though this, this guy was an officer in the school, uh, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, the idea, though, is that Putting, uh, they use a zip tie. It's a six-year-old child, whether it's a boy or a girl. What adult doesn't feel as though they couldn't use their words to somehow convey to this child that uh, their behavior was inappropriate and uh, there somehow has to be, I don't know if punishment is a word, but at least some kind of uh, recognition of wrongdoing and then we have to kind of fix this behavior. How do you, how do you go from that to, I'm going to, Come in here in, in uniform, put you with your hands behind your back, and then take you to a police car. And, and as we have this dialogue and conversation, it's important to note that law enforcement and safety resource officers, which have been put into place kind of around that, you know, time of Littleton, Colorado and the shooting in Columbine, right? Which I went and visited. I, I met the students. I did interviews. I, um, I, I, I got to meet a lot of the families affected by it. And, uh, but going back a step before we get into that conversation is that law enforcement are literally trained on how to arrest youth at that age. So they don't put handcuffs at their wrist. Um, they put it at their, the highest part of their arm and they sometimes use zip ties because the handcuffs, if placed at the, uh, at the wrist, where it's supposed to play, uh, you know, um, where, to, yeah, where yeah. it's supposed to be, yeah. um, they would fall off. So they are taught how to actually handcuff youth. And that's problematic, right? So we're actually institutionalizing and educating people on how to do this. Not to say, wait a second, should we be doing this in the first place? Should we be arresting... Um, Maybe six, seven years ago, there was an arrest uh, of another youth, right, in Florida at five years old, right? We're talking first, second, kindergarten age, you know, youth at five years old, like having tantrums, kicking. The black youth um, girl uh, that was just arrested, uh, she was autistic. 
And and I think that needs to kind of uh, be noted of, you know, what are we doing with and how are we policing and uh, silencing and marginalizing youth with disabilities and youth of color? And what I also thought was interesting, too, is that so the uh, the teachers, the educators knew that the young lady had the, the autism issue. Yes. And still somehow did not have the uh, the wherewithal to act in a way that would address that and still maintain this young lady's humanity and dignity. Yes. And so I, I, I find so much of that troubling because I, I just, again, if this was a little white kid, would the same thing have taken place? I don't know, but I, I, I'd like to probably think not because I have seen many examples of similar behavior where it is just handled very differently than if it was a young person of color. And we can look at... You know, somebody says, hey, Jason, we don't we don't believe you. So we can look at, you know, look at uh, Annie Casey Foundation based in D.C. We can look at the campaign for youth justice in uh, based in D.C. We can look at, you know, uh, out of New York and D.C., uh, the organization called Dignities in Schools that have factual data that actually proves that point over and over again. Uh, and there's many organizations, including Save the Kids, that have factual data that says, no, there's a uh, disproportionate uh, uh amount of youth of color being arrested, uh, overrepresented, um, while youth that are white uh, are given a lot less uh, severe severe discipline and punishment. Uh, They're not, uh, you know, they're given expelled, suspended, uh, you know, uh, given detentions, they're given a lot more warnings. When we come back, we'll continue our discussion about how to address the issue of youth incarceration and, again, uh, Anthony's work on the prison to uh, prison, I'm sorry, the school to prison pipeline, which definitely has affected so many people who are uh, minority, brown and black. You're listening to Voices of Reason. It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back to Voices of Reason. I am Jason Lee. Amy's out this week. I am speaking with Anthony Nocella. He is a sociologist and assistant professor in the Department of Criminal Justice at Salt Lake Community College. He's also the director of Save the Kids. It's a national nonprofit uh, that has its aim at ending youth incarceration and addressing the issue of the school to prison pipeline. We were talking a little bit about how uh, the there is a difference in how uh, young uh, children of color who eventually sometimes end up becoming uh, wards of the state because they become involved in the um, the criminal justice system. And oftentimes they're, they're treated more harshly. I remember uh, I was uh, talk, talking with you offline here about an incident that happened, I believe, in Baltimore, where a young lady who was in junior high, like sixth, seventh grade or something like that, and she was flipped over in her classroom by a police officer. And I was just thinking, I, I thought to myself, how did that officer feel as though brutalizing that young lady was the way to handle that situation when all she said was she was throwing a tantrum and didn't want to leave the room. 
And it just seemed as though it was such an overreaction to what was then just kind of minor bad behavior. But this seems to happen uh, all too frequently with, uh, with children uh, who are a minority. I think it happens because we haven't addressed uh, Brown versus Board of Education. And it goes fundamentally into uh, being bamboozled at that time, uh, May 17th, right? Uh, Brown versus Board of Education, the end of segregation. But the problem was that when we ended segregation, black youth were uh, then located into white schools being taught by white teachers, predominantly white uh, women, that about white history. And so looking back from a critical educational, critical race theorist uh, perspective, in many ways, desegregation um, at the control and at the hands of white America was a highly problematic and wrong thing to do. It wasn't collaborative and it wasn't black teachers and black and white teachers teaching, right? Uh, so then we have this reinforcement of black youth hating themselves, right? Saying that the white doll is a good doll and the black mm-hmm. doll is a bad doll. And we know that's a psychological test that occurred. Um, and it was a fundamental test, right, of internalized oppression, right? And so I think what we have to this day is uh, still a segregation. Uh, and this segregation... Uh, is legal. And how they get away with it is IEPs. And this idea of IEPs is... What is IEP? uh, Individual Education Program. And it's the first step um, in, I would like to say, in uh, piping youth of color into the school-to-prison pipeline. First, you say that they're stupid or they have a disability, whatever non-critical, critical perspective, Mm -hmm. right? And then you place those youth of color into special ed, saying that they have a disability, not the teacher. The teacher doesn't have any problems. The teacher's brilliant, always great. Mm-hmm. And, and again, I'm a teacher. I'm, I'm being critical to my own occupation, mm-hmm. my own field, my own industry, right? And, and saying, hey, teachers, uh, we're not the problem. It's the students that are not listening and paying attention, and they're speaking back now in the 90s and the, and the 2000s. Mm-hmm. And so we have a, uh, a rise of, of youth of color going into special ed, and, uh, and the next step is uh, what we identify as a behavioral disorder, um, which uh, was really critiqued in Chicago and, uh, and by a lot of activists and social justice educators and things, saying that black youth are being uh, labeled at an alarming rate um, with this behavioral disorder, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and, and we could see this behavioral disorder brilliantly um, articulated in Boys in the Hood at the very, very beginning, right after the walking, going to the school, and then the teacher uh, is trying to get the attention of, uh, of how the world began, right? And, and, the, and the beginning of Thanksgiving, right? Talking about Thanksgiving. And one youth uh, laughs and starts joking and he says, oh, man, Thanksgiving, you know, that's, that's, oh, that's a lie, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and then it was kind of a challenge to this whole notion of you're perpetuating a particular type mm-hmm. of history. And, uh, and so then the, the black youth stood up 
um, and then talked about the idea that all people are from Africa, right? And then there was some challenge there, right? Mm-hmm. Because one youth was articulate and aware of black history mm-hmm. and African history and Pan-African history and the diaspora, uh, where other people were not. Uh, and I think that's the, the fundamental discussion that needs to still happen and has not changed within schools to this day is we need to change curriculum. We need to understand, we need to start valuing different cultures uh, and understand that math did not come from England. You right, know? Right, right. It came from Egypt right. and, and, and countries and, and, and uh, nations and regions of people of color. Oh, right. right? The, the zero did not come from England. No. <laughs> you know, it didn't come from Ireland either. So I think we need to start re-addressing uh, that who created what. So is this uh, something you do at like kind of the local level in your local school boards? How do we how do we uh, affect the change that you describe so that uh, we can offer uh, children an opportunity to learn what is our true history, which would also then give them an opportunity to you know uh, not have some of the the self esteem issues they have, which kind of may, may manifest itself in some of that behavior, because again. Uh, if if you want kids to go on the right path, you got to give them the, all the tools they need to be successful. And I wonder, it, from what you describe, it doesn't sound as though those things are uh, in place right now. So it's so going into the field of education, um, and I taught education at a number of other universities around the country, and uh, and. And so what I found was that it's not about being culturally aware or culturally competent, because I'm never going to be competent at being a black woman in the United States. I don't know what it means. Right. But I will be culturally relevant. And that means being authentic. But if you don't know what hip hop is, then don't try to, you know, fake it. It's kind of like Freedom Riders. Mm -hmm. That was a that was, you know, whitewashing and perpetuating, you know, the glorification of 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 the savior mentality. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, But I. I do think that we need to listen to what hip hop is saying. It's brilliant. It's very articulate. Uh, you know, Dear Mama by Tupac said yeah. something brilliant. And that's why that song, was, it resonated with a lot of young people, specifically young, young black people, mm-hmm. because the line that says, yeah, I'm in elementary, but one day I'll see the penitentiary. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you're in elementary, third grade, and you already are ready for the penitentiary? That's horrible. Because you know about the penitentiary, but a lot of t- uh, and sadly, it's because it has been probably in, in your community and maybe in, more than likely in your family. For sure. And I think you have a more likelihood, one out of three black men, before they die, mm-hmm. will be arrested and incarcerated about 1 to 10 to 1 to 15, all depending on, you know, the particular degree, associate's degree, bachelor's degree, are going to be accepted into college, right? And and then the retention and, and uh, uh, retention and recruitment of, of black males, specifically, mm-hmm. um, which are the highest rate of incarcerated mm-hmm. population, right? Uh, which black women are now, you know, on the rise as well, Um because of fighting back domestic violence, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of uh, issues around that, right? Uh, and so I think we need to articulate, you know, what are we doing and how are we motivating? And your, your question goes back to, so how do we change the system, mm-hmm. right? We, we've we talked a little bit about the problem, and I think first curriculum, a critical perspective of, critical, uh, of curriculum that needs to be developed, um, cri- uh, culturally relevant issues. So Salt Lake Community College with the Utah Reintegration Project, uh, 
headed out of the Department of Criminal Justice and the Office of Diversity, uh, uh, Chief Diversity Officer, uh, Dr. uh, Leilani Kinney-Kinney. We're focusing on lowrider studies. We're focusing on hip-hop. We're focusing on punk. What's a lowrider study? So it's the first time we're creating an institution in higher education. UCLA doesn't have it. Stanford doesn't have it. UC Riverside doesn't have it. We're focusing on how... Uh, low rider, uh, low riders actually foster a culture. Um, bicycles, clothing, food, um, family values uh, coming out of the Chicano, Chicana, mm-hmm. Latino, Latina, Latinx, uh, um, the Cholo culture, yeah. uh, community. So when when uh, black youth in the Bronx say hip hop saved my life, a lot of uh, youth that are brown in the Southwest say lowrider saved my life. Uh, and I think we need to understand in the Utah uh, area, specifically in Salt Lake, we have a, a huge population that needs to be respected um, and, and listened to of, and, and, that's, uh, and then integrated into our curriculum and specifically around lowrider issues. So when we come back, I want to continue on this because uh, I, I find this kind of thing fascinating because, again, this offers some insight into how uh, we always want to know solutions to how we can, uh, you know, address this uh, school to prison pipeline. This is the answer, right? The programs like this, efforts like this, offer pe- young people a chance to see a future that they otherwise might not have, and that's that's hope is everything, right? Yes. You're listening to Voices of Reason. Welcome back to Voices of Reason. I am Jason Lee. Uh, today I'm speaking with Anthony Nocella. He's a sociologist and assistant professor in the Department of uh, Criminal Justice at Salt Lake Community College. He's also the director of Save the Kids. It's a national organization, a nonprofit, and it's working to end the incarceration of young people and also to end the uh, and address the issue of the school to prison pipeline. And you were talking a little bit uh, before the break about how particularly uh, this, this program called Lowrider. And Lowrider is kind of akin to what hip-hop is to, uh, to young African-Americans. Uh, Lowrider is kind of the same thing to those of uh, Latino and Latinx descent, right? Exactly. And it has a long history going back to the Mayas, the uh, Aztecs. So mm-hmm. if you go to a lowrider show, lowrider festival, um, you're going to see a lot of Aztec, a um, lot of uh, spiritual uh, symbols on the cars, on the bicycles, on the clothing, airbrushed banner signs, mm-hmm. pictures, uh, art pieces. And I think people look at lowriders as a materialistic um, you know, event, and it's just about, quote, the bling, right? And mm-hmm. it's not. And people need to get beyond that. And uh, it's it's keeping people away from drugs and violence in a very critical um, and uh, conscious uh, uh, sociopolitical um, effort where, as we were speaking before off air, is where the war on drugs and uh, just say no or dare, um, dare yeah. really did not uh, come from the community. It wasn't a grassroots. It was a top-down mm-hmm. effort, um, and it didn't relate, and so it failed, right? As scared straight, uh, I had a, a major news uh, uh, TV station asked me, hey, can uh, you know can Save the Kids be part of a scared straight kind of effort? You all go 
in and we're like, we don't do scared straight. You know, these kids are already scared. You know, mm-hmm. you can't get them more right. scared of a system that is targeting them to be incarcerated the rest of their lives, like, and, and not to be educated, right? And not to love themselves, right? And I think uh, lowrider uh, culture, lowrider studies is about uh, first recognizing, educating ourselves, understanding the value of that particular culture and understanding on the same breath how hip-hop is so fundamental uh, in uh, the stories and narrative and experiences of of youth, specifically black youth. Mm-hmm. But now it's global. Hip-hop no, is global. It totally is. And so is I saw him get the day on the, uh, on the train I was riding in. He had Ice Cube on his, uh, I mean, had a hoodie. And I'm thinking to myself, that's because he, as much as he can, he, he feels what uh, the same kind of uh, understanding of life that uh, Cube did back in his day. Certainly it was in a different uh, environment, but some of the same things happened around in, in his life probably. For sure. And we see lowriders now in Korea, China, mm-hmm. uh, Russia, Germany, and it's a global culture, right? It's not as large um, because they can't sell the car. They can't sell the bike, unlike a CD. you know. So they don't have a product to sell. It's mm-hmm. just pictures. It's art, right? So, And they can't make uh, prints of it like the Mona Lisa or the Van Gogh or something of that sort. So I think people don't understand how so significant it is. So if we want to understand uh, and we we need to come to the reality that the United States is going to be predominantly people of color in the next decade or two, right? Um, And if that's true, um, and if that's going to be the case, then we need to understand and respect other people's cultures. Uh, and I would say, uh, and Salt Lake Community College with the chief diversity officer, she and I, uh, Lilani, are looking at lowrider studies and putting on lowrider events, and they're going uh, wonderfully and being highly equitable and inclusive towards social justice. I would say we need to meet people where we are if we want to end the school-to-prison pipeline. And that incarceration is actually psychologically um, socially, economically, and politically damaging to a community. So we need to do everything in our our best beha- uh, our best um, actions and resources to do whatever we can do to not incarcerate people. Period. Right. So once they get in the system, um, it's psychologically damaging to that individual, specifically more for youth, right? Mm-hmm. Because they get institutionalized, as Shawshank, you know, you, absolutely. Uh, the movie said, you know, you begin to hate the walls, then you begin to appreciate the walls, and then you become dependent on the, the walls, walls. That's right. Right. And I think um, we can't allow some to be dependent on the walls, right? And we need to get away from being dependent and making schools not a prison but a place of liberation and freedom and and laughter where grades are not the fundamental and be all and end all right where education and knowledge and you know finding oneself right that's the whole point of if we look back at the history of the concept of education to foster a healthy democracy right um but we've gotten so caught up that education is about grades and standardization of tests and and rubrics and we forgot that you you know, authentic uniqueness um, and uh, finding out uh, the discovery of one's identity if it comes to gender or sexuality is is the the central theme of what true education is about. But what we're doing is not education. What we're doing is schooling. You know, we're making people prepared for a job mm-hmm. rather than being prepared to have critical intellectual uh, discussions about freedom and liberation and justice and peace. Right. So kids, how do in order to kind of get them on this path, what would you suggest to a parents in about a minute and a half uh, that would uh, 
maybe two minutes. But uh, the idea, though, is what do you say to parents who want to have, who aspire to have their kids do what you just described, to become the, the fullest of themselves, knowing themselves, appreciative of who they are, and still being able to somehow, uh, you know, make it through school, become educated, and potentially, you know, a person who uh, offers value to society later on? First, I would say get them to know their culture. Everybody has a culture, sub, you know, be it a uh, counterculture, uh, uh, a, a large culture, small culture, whatever it is. And I think once they start knowing about themselves, they start valuing themselves and they start having self-worth. Before anybody can begin to learn math, science, history, they need to have self-worth. Uh, and I would, uh, I would start pushing the books aside and begin to talk about self-worth in our classrooms from West Valley to, you know, uh, to Sugar House everywhere. We need to teach uh, a value to, to youth and, and make them happy. So as, uh, how do, uh, as an educator, though, how do you convey, how does that get conveyed to you so that you help the, uh, these kids manifest it? So black history can't be a, a month. Uh, and uh, but there is no Latino. I mean, no, you know Cinco de Mayo. Right, right. That's and it's it. a festival. Right. And everyone gets drunk. Right. Uh, and it's corporatized by Coors Light and, you know, Corona. Corona. Exactly. And, and you knew it and I knew it. We <laughs> said it at the exact same time because it's been commodified and exoticized. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we need to get away from that. And we need to, to understand that, yes, we can teach a curriculum um, on a multiple amounts of intersection perspectives and identities at the exact same time and our textbooks need to, to reflect that and the textbooks as well as the readings need to be a lot more uh, diverse and uh, um, Heroes and Holidays is a great book that all teachers need to check out it talks about exactly what we've been talking about when we come back we'll finish our discussion uh, and again get some more ideas on what we can do to help young people become you know the best adults they can become rather than so what happens so frequently is that they find themselves uh, somehow involved in criminal justice in a way that is detrimental to their upbringing. You're listening to Voices of Reason. We are back with Voices of Reason. I'm Jason Lee, speaking today with Anthony Nocella. He's a sociologist and assistant professor in the Department of Criminal Justice at Salt Lake Community College in Salt Lake City. And he's also the national director for Save the Kids, a national nonprofit to end incarceration of young people and also to end the uh, school-to-prison pipeline. Uh, So, Professor, you noted that you've been doing this work for uh, for quite a while and you've actually lived around the country and kind of seen this. What are the the kinds of things that... uh, people can do to reach their kids early so that they and, and, and kind of the work you've been doing to, to, to get them on the way to becoming their best selves? I would say first, uh, we need to have honest conversations without the fear of punishment. Uh, and we think that the criminal justice system is just the criminal justice system, but that idea of punitive justice, punishment, um, trickles into our schools, trickles into our careers, jobs, uh, trickles into our personal uh, romantic relationships. It trickles into our families. We, we teach through punishment. Rather than teaching 
uh, through a healing and, and justice manner, right? And a peaceful, reflective manner, right? And so I'd say we need to have, allow our, our children to come to us when they have issues around race, when they have issues around gender and sexuality. So providing families and communities a, a safe space to discuss things, right? Um, that would be one. Second, I would say uh, for schools to look a lot different, right? Uh, and understanding that school shouldn't be just a place where, and schools are doing this, public schools are doing this, but I think more public schools need to be a community center where parents can hang out and get their GED too, where you can do your laundry, where you can have bowling, where you can have skating, where you can do all these different things. Uh, and um, so it's not just a place of education where you come in, punch in, punch out, but, it, but it's a family center, a library. Kind of a community, communal situation. Exactly. And a lot of people are, are speaking about that, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I also and it's think... it's a lot different than what a school... You know, as I, as I think of school, I don't know if I've ever thought of it that way as you described it. So, yeah, I, we need to restructure the, the physical locations. And mm-hmm. we also need to take down the idea of, um, of our, our fences, right? So we have a lot of fences ourselves. When we're talking, you know, you have a lot of people that are Democrats and, and, and Republicans mm-hmm. talking about this border, this southern border. But we have borders all over, you know, uh, every major city, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, I-15 splits... You know, uh, a group of people. In Chicago, the Dan Ryan did the same thing. Exactly. And Los Angeles has Compton. And, you know, when it splits it away. And then, you know, uh, Minneapolis. Every single major city has a road, a railroad, a wall, a fence, what a a physical barrier that splits um, people of color to white people, the wealthy versus the poor. Mm -hmm. And we need to to look at that in our own geographical and political landscapes and say, how can we dismantle those? We have our walls within our own communities. Mm-hmm. We're talking about the border wall, but what about the walls that we have right behind our you know, backyard mm-hmm. that we want nobody in our, our backyard, right? And I think that's the, that's, that's the, it begins at our home to take down our own fences, mentally as well as physically, mm-hmm. and then beginning to look around our community, look around our, um, our schools and colleges. You know, there's a numerous amounts of, of colleges and universities around the country that have fences up, that have guards up, that have, you know, police and surveillance around that they don't want certain people in and what they want certain people in out. Right. And I think that's uh, needing to be articulated as well. And uh, so we need to, you know, uh, challenge the landscape, uh, challenge the curriculum, uh, as well as provide new and relevant uh, activities that youth can get involved in rather than just dropping them off at the mall or dropping them off on the corner or staying home and playing on their phones or the video games and zoning completely out um, and not being able to be social, right? And not being taught to be social. So youth open mics, perfect, right? Um, poetry slams, ciphers, uh, all ages hip hop shows, all ages dance shows, um, you know, keeping uh, bowling alleys and roller skating uh, open uh longer periods of time you know i i said in colorado durango we have durango had about 23 24 suicides in one year in 2017 Mm. of all types of people and huge amounts of alcohol issues and a huge amounts of people on on uh heroin and and i said what we need to solve this issue you know is open up a bowling alley open up a dave and busters open up a chuck e cheese open up something that 
people can do beyond, you know, uh, going home by themselves and isolating themselves. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think that's what we can do in our own communities is, you know, open up the parks, keep them, you know, put up the basketball hoops again, Mm -hmm. uh, open up the pools, et cetera, et cetera. So I would say keep, keep, you know, keep us busy, keep them busy. um, And hopefully as the summer comes along, we have the National Week of Action Against Incarcerating Youth, May 17th, um, Brown versus Board of Education Mm -hmm. to May 24th. And we do it because because May 19th is Malcolm X's birthday and May 21st is Biggie's birthday. Mm-hmm. And so we do it on that. But we also know that May um, is uh, when school comes out and it's the highest time of incarceration of youth. And because they're running around, jaywalking, mm-hmm. you know, they don't have things to do. Mm-hmm. So it's our duty as adults to keep them busy and ha- having fun. Because when youth are having fun and busy playing basketball, little league, baseball, football, arts, dancing, singing, um, they will less likely uh, stay out of trouble, stay out of drugs, stay out of gangs, stay out of violence. Uh, and the, their minds are going to be uh, that much occupied and their hands are going to be occupied. And I think that's something that we can do. Um, if you want to know more about the National Week of Action, uh, 17th to the 24th, in around the whole country, anybody can get involved, churches, synagogues, um, uh, organization, agencies, pro, uh, schools, universities. Uh, check out savethekidsgroup.org. And uh, uh, Chelsea, who's the national coordinator, local here, an uh, amazing teacher, uh, Chicana uh, teacher here, um, can get you involved uh, no matter what city you're in. Professor uh, Anthony uh, Nocello, you are doing some wonderful work, and I am really appreciative of you joining me today. Thank you so much. And uh, join us again for the next episode of the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. If you have any comments about our show, please contact us via email at VOR, uh, I'm sorry, take that back, AD on Sports is uh, our Twitter feed, and also Jason Lee One. You can email me at J- VORJasonL at gmail.com, or you can email Amy at VORAmyD uh, at gmail.com. You can find episodes of our podcast on Google Podcasts or Apple Podcasts or any other places where you find interesting content. Be sure to review our show as well. We love to get your feedback, and it helps us grow our audience. Until next time, I'm Jason Lee. When you engage in passionate debate, do your best to keep your dialogue civil. Try to be the voice of reason. Voices of Reason is a production of the Loudmouth Project.